Welcome to Neither Jew Nor Greek, a podcast where we engage in scholarly and scriptural conversations about the cultural divisions and the community of Christ followers, which prevent us from walking together in unity. I am your host, Amatayo Banjo, and you are invited to come and dine. Welcome to another episode of Neither Jew Nor Greek, where we discuss uh, the issues and tensions of race, ethnicity, and faith, and the mission of the gospel, which is to bring us together. My name is Omotayo Banjo. I am a professor of communication at the University of Cincinnati, and I'm here with my guest, Reverend Gareth Murray Jr. He was a pastoral ministry for 17 years. Uh, he's the former director of School of Ministry for Leland Seminary in Arlington, Virginia. Currently, he's an international speaker on the topic of white supremacy and Eurocentrism in the church and in the religious academy. And today, I've invited him to talk with us about the need and the value of the Black church. Welcome, Gareth. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for having me. It's a pleasure. So when you and I talked um, before, you shared your journey to where you are right now. And I'd like to dive into that because I think your experience resonates with a lot of people's, other people's experiences. Are you comfortable with sharing? Sure. And you're speaking of my experience in, uh, in my church. Yes. 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 Dealing, being, being a, a leader and sort of, especially within the context of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and how that impacted you and what you've been processing since then. Yes. Okay. So, so most of my ministry experience has been in multicultural spaces. So when it came to George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and, and all of that and processing all of that, I was particularly paying attention to what was happening in multicultural spaces, especially from my white sisters and brothers and those adjacent to them uh, or who enjoy being adjacent to them. And, you know, in my ministry context, I was always trying to push the envelope and move the needle forward and talk about things directly. Um, my previous church was, you know, historically very conservative. And so my, I felt my responsibility was to help move people forward in terms of their understanding of social justice, systemic racism, and how that relates to the, the Christian call to love your neighbor. Um, now, unfortunately, um, I, along with many others who, who kind of serve in the racial reconciliation multicultural space, was I was very disappointed at what I saw, the reaction I saw, uh, even, in, even in illuminating how the biblical text, how the life and teachings of Jesus speak to issues of justice, issues of equality, issues of, uh, you know, caring about these issues. And so um, it was heartbreaking, to be honest, it was heartbreaking. And so um, it just drove home to me how friendliness is so often mistaken for love. And the two are not the same. Because people, you know, multicultural churches can do friendliness really well. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to love in terms of allowing your, your, your other neighbor, your neighbor who is not of your same ethnic background to share and voice their experiences, to share 
and voice their concerns and, and issues of injustice. Uh, you know, if, if, if that friendliness requires silence, it's not love. And that's often the prerequisite for that friendliness in many multicultural contexts is the prerequisite is don't talk about race, don't talk about white supremacy, don't talk about social justice, mm -hmm. and let's just all be friendly. Right, 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 right. And, and oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Yeah, well, and what ends up happening is the church actually ends up reproducing mm -hmm. the same injustices that we see in society. Yeah. The same things we see. And so when the church is supposed to be a safe haven, supposed to be a refuge, it just becomes another space where people of color have to watch how they act, watch what they say, and kind of monitor their own blackness, monitor their own ethnicity so that they're not, so they don't make other people uncomfortable. And that's not the way church is supposed to be. Right. Yeah, I was going to say I was in a conversation with uh, Professor Mark Ward, and he was talking about how the white evangelical church has um, somewhat uh, isolated um, people of color by avoiding structural inequity. And so the, the church culture sort of thrives on more hot button top topics related to let's say sexuality and abortion um, or border security, things like that. But when it comes to the actual structural things, people don't wanna talk about it. And as a result, they end up isolating people of color, believers of color. And um, I, I wonder how this plays a role into maybe the history of the organization of the black church and the, the current um, exodus of many black people to black churches or even Afrocentric religions instead of Christianity. Um, right. In my edited volume um, with uh, Keisha Morant Williams, uh, Contemporary Christian Culture, um, a few, one contributor uh, talked about the need for the black church. And in our discussion of the need of the multicultural church, they argue that black people basically, we need the black church. Um, and that multiculturalism doesn't really meet the needs of, of black people. And it sort of speaks to what you just said, but I'm curious about, um, you know, how you would speak to this, like whether or not black people uh, can exist, how, how much do they need them? Can they thrive in a multicultural church or what is the function of the black church for black, the black community? Right. Well, it, it really depends upon, upon the person. Mm -hmm. But I, but I am telling, I've been telling people in the wake of everything, because we, we extend grace, we try to give people a chance, but at this point, I feel it's irresponsible mm -hmm. not to tell Black Christians that multicultural spaces that do not address white supremacy head on cannot be trusted to care for your soul in the way you deserve to be cared mm -hmm. for. Um, because the expectation will be assimilation and conformity in the, in the same way those expectations are thrust upon us in society, it happens right in the multicultural church. So the condition on being in a multicultural church in my, in my opinion is as a bare minimum, unlearning white supremacy needs to be treated as a normative base level Christian practice. Mm -hmm. You know, like that has to be a very introductory level. This is how you follow Jesus 
as someone who's raised in an American context and has been socialized in a, mm. in a society of white supremacy, unlearning white supremacy has to be at near the top of the list, maybe at the top of the list in terms of how you follow Jesus today. Mm. And so if that's not happening, then you know these churches, they can only offer the friendliness the, and the friendliness will only go so far. And the friendliness will always be conditioned upon your ability to conform to, the, to, to white normativity. And so if someone is okay with doing that, say some people are. Unfortunately, some people are okay with doing that and are content to do it with doing that. But that number of people is becoming less and less and less and less. Right, right, and we're finding right. out that actually in order for us to really receive the spiritual healing and edification and life and love we need and deserve, it needs to be with people who recognize our humanity and are not afraid to address issues that affect us, you know? And there would be no black church if it wasn't for racism in the white church. It wouldn't even exist. You know, Can many you of the- speak more on that? Like, yeah, so, so many, of the, many of the black denominations, whether it's AME, Kojic, uh, these denominations were birthed out of failed attempts of black leaders to find uh, full expression of their of their gifts and their callings within a church context occupied by white folks. Mm. So, you know, if you were a black Christian, there, there, you know, the history of the United States is if you if you were a black Christian uh, going to a church led by white sisters and brothers. You had this, there was a certain section you had to sit in. You couldn't sit anywhere in the congregation. You had to sit in the back. There were certain rules in terms of if you were receiving, receiving communion, you didn't receive communion in the same way as others. I mean, it was just, it was oppressive. It, it was an oppressive system. And people recognize, look, if we're gonna, if we're gonna follow our call, we gotta do this on our own terms. We can't, we can't wait for our white sisters and brothers to figure it out. We gotta do something for ourselves in the name of love, in the name of self-love, mm -hmm. you know? And so, you know, that, that is the genesis of the black church. Mm -hmm. you, know? you reminded me of, um, what you said reminded me of, I have a vague memory of the Azusa Street Revival. Do you, are you familiar with that story? Yes, somewhat. Yes, uh, yes. And is that the situation where it was so, somewhat of a multicultural it revival was. experience? But then, what do you know? What happened that sort of led to this racial break? Which eventually did, did that produce the Kojic Church or another denomination that was majority black? And I, I'm not familiar with the with the the, the particular breakoffs with mm -hmm. coming out of Azusa Street, but. Mm -hmm. It was, it did begin as a multicultural movement, but, you know, I can only speculate that, you know, when it came to who was in charge and who had power, you know, um, I would, I would speculate that the, the white sisters and brothers would only allow things to go so far. You know? Yeah, so. I heard that from um, my pastor um, who, um, whose mission is racial reconciliation as well. And unfortunately, I don't remember the names of the individuals, but um, from what I recall, there was a, a break in denomination that became racialized because of the, the, the workings of, of whiteness and white privilege. And that's just another example um, to speak yes. to what you just, what you yes. just said.
so would you say that these issues are the same for other ethnic groups that say Korean or Ethiopian or Venezuelan believers, or is the Black American experience distinct? I think, I think the Black American experience is distinct in the, um, in the sense that anti-Blackness is a global phenomenon. There's anti-Blackness in Latin America, there's anti-Blackness in Asia, there's anti-Blackness in places where there are not just white people present, but there are brown people present and other, other tones present. So uh, anti-Blackness is a, is, is a particular struggle that you know, Black Americans have to face. I think, um, I think every ethnic group has their own unique, unique challenges, you know, I think about, for example, uh, Latinx sisters and brothers who are often treated like second-class citizens in their churches. If they are a, for example, a Spanish-speaking congregation, they're often treated as a separate entity. They don't belong to the English-speaking church. They're, the, they're their own thing. They pay rent. They worship in the basement. They're not seen as equals. And that was another thing that I, you know, in my own personal ministry, I sought to overthrow and flip some tables and change things around because when I got to my previous church, it was, you know, the, the Spanish language ministry worshiped in the basement and they, it was a whole separate thing. We said, no, 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 no. And we started doing things together, you know, ha having them worship in the main sanctuary, doing multilingual services, you know, once a quarter, you know, the, the Spanish language pastor and I would plan our preaching calendars together. So we'd be preaching on the same things each Sunday mm -hmm. to really integrate it, you know, having one budget that, that the whole church voted on, not the English speaking and the Spanish speaking, you know, we all vote on, on the church budget together. So, so that's one, you know, just one example of a different ethnic group that has their own unique struggle. Right. I'm glad you shared that. Um, now, in what ways would you say centering white perspectives have played in our theology, um, in our oh, American yes. views of faith and, and how we relate to one another. Yes, so let me, let me give a simple example of how this plays out. So when James Cone writes a book on theology, the late, the late great James Cone writes a book on theology, the title on the book is Black Theology. When Renita Weems writes a book on theology, in the section in the library, the section is feminist theology. When, when, when you know, Gustavo Gutierrez, if you want to see works by Gustavo Gutierrez from Latin America, you know, liberation theology coming out of Latin America, it will be, it will be under the section of Latin American theology. And the same goes for Asian theology, right? Mm -hmm. But if, but if a, a, a Euro born or Euro, a descendant of Europe, white male writes a book on theology, what section does it go under? Theology, theology. just <laughs> theology. Right. So the assumption is that the white perspective is the norm around which others must be judged. And so, you know, the, the erasure of the cultural context from which the white perspective comes, assuming it to be normative, is like the, one of the biggest issues. 
especially in the academy. You know, we never call theology from white folks white, but we need to. We need to, we need not, not as a, in a derogatory way, but to, but to faithfully name the cultural conditioning that mm -hmm. is present in every theology. Every perspective has its own unique strengths, blind spots, weaknesses, contributions. Uh, so we, we have to have a round table perspective where every, uh, every unique um, theological view is treated as constitutive to the conversation rather than ornamental, you know, like the real, the real theology is like Karl Barth and Jürgen Moltmann and N.T. Wright. And then you might take one, you might have one lecture on James Cone and Gustavo mm -hmm. Gutierrez. Right, you know? right, right. So, yeah, so, so, mm -hmm. and that, and that filters through not only for pastors, but then that filters through right to congregations because pastors are only replicating in a lot of ways, the things that they're exposed to in seminary. Right, uh, right. Seminary, so you know, right? So, you mentioned anti blackness, um, anti blackness being a global issue, and I'm curious whether or not to what degree do you think centering whiteness within our theology has played a role in it? A role in that, I think, centering, I think, white supremacy comes first, white supremacy in society comes first, which then creates the centering of whiteness in our theology, right. The centering of whiteness in theology is uh, is the result of of unchecked white supremacy, unlearned, unchecked learned white supremacy in society. So, so I guess it are, are you saying what role does the centering of whiteness in theology play in white supremacy? I would um, ask. What role does does it play in global anti blackness? Global anti blackness, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. I think if anything, it it reinforces anti-blackness. It it allows anti-blackness to go unchecked and unchallenged in terms of uh, discipleship practice. I think it weakens the prophetic acumen of Christians globally who should be able to see their culture through not a not a judgmental lens, but through a critical lens, so that they can. They, they can accurately discern what love has to look like in their particular context. Mm -hmm. And if their theology does not give them the tools to see what love requires from a prophetic perspective, then it, it weakens their witness, it weakens their growth. And we have folks walking around thinking that being nice to people is what Jesus requires when it's, mm -hmm. a, when it's a lot deeper than that. Someone of that, um, it reminds me of this, uh, the stereotype of the Southern hospitality. We're like, oh, bless your heart. Like there's this performance of kindness, yes. but there's not an actual um, sincerity. Well, not to say that that's true of all Southern folk, but that's sort of the stereotype of the Southern hospitality, Southern kindness. Um, yes. What I'm curious, what stories, you know, have we been told or not told that have silenced the role of Black believers um, in, in shaping the church today? Yeah, well, we can talk about, we can start with Black people in the Bible, for one. Mm -hmm. yeah. We can talk about how, you know, <laughs> let's, let's start with one of the famous folks, Moses, for example. When one of the signs that God, and according to the story, mm -hmm. that God gave Moses to say, to say that, hey, you're talking to God here, was he made his hands turn white 
when he put him in his cloak. Mm. Right? He put his hand in his cloak, it came out and it was white. And that was meant to be a sign. Mm. So if his hand being white is a sign of a miracle, well, clearly he wasn't light skinned. <laughs> so why is it that all these pictures we have of Moses <laughs> in art, in books, is, is light skin mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with being light skin right, right. Be but it's just you know there's a reason why biblical characters get whitewashed um so so that's one that's one way you know we have to you know that's why in in my in my church you know, where i was pastor i did not allow pictures of jesus anywhere if he did not look like he was from the middle east yeah yeah. As a bare minimum, he has to look like he's 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 from the Middle East. I don't, you know, in children's ministry material mm -hmm. and or, you know, if there's any pictures around, he needs to it needs to be accurate historically. Right. You know? I'm also thinking about what you shared about I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yes. Uh, Dietrich he was Bonhoeffer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, another another example. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German, late German theologian who was famous for his um his prophetic critique of Hitler and, 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 and those who had a theology that was accommodating of Nazism. Uh, people celebrate Bonhoeffer all over the world, but what they don't know about Bonhoeffer is that early in his, I guess you wanna call it theological career, his theological development, his theology actually was very accommodating of Nazism. Mm. But it wasn't until he traveled to the United States uh, where he, he studied at Union Theological Seminary and attended a black church led by Adam Clayton Powell Sr. Mm -hmm. That experience in the black church is what gave him the prophetic acumen to mm -hmm. then look at his own context at home with fresh eyes, which then birthed the Bonifer that we celebrate today. Yeah. And so, and that to me is a model of what, uh, if you want to call it white Christianity, ought to follow. Yeah. I think there is power in listening to voices from the margins. And this is this is Gustavo Gutierrez's main, one of his main thesis is that is that your experience of God goes up when your social associations go down. Oh, wow. Wow. If you remember in, if you remember in the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine, mm. who were the first people to recognize the water had turned to wine? It was the people who were serving. Oh. And it, and it, and it, and it names it very specifically. So mm -hmm. there, there's, there's, there's power in listening to sitting under the tutelage of you know, voices from the margins. And so you talk about contributions of the black church. I mean, come on, where do, where do we even begin? I mean, people love to talk about Martin Luther King, obviously, but you know, it, it, the contributions are unending. I would love to hear at least two more, just to have a look, just to have um, just a few more stories of how the black church, church has contributed to uh, the church as a whole. Um, yes. Because it, in, a, in a former conversation with someone, we were talking about um, how a lot of CCM music, it 
focuses on, you know, praise and worship, uplift, you know, just having a more positive and encouraging experience. But if you read the whole book of Psalms, it was, it was a bit depressing. And in many ways, the origins of gospel music comes from um, the sorrow and frustration and gospel music can capture that. And so we argued then that um, we, as believers, we we sort of miss out on the full Christian experience when we don't consider other perspectives. And since, um, at least in this conversation, we're talking about the ways that African-Americans and and the black church has sort of been silenced. I wanna kind of create a little more space for just a little, just maybe one or two more stories uh, that sort of speak to the contributions of the black church, if you can think of any. Yes, Um, so I think the black church uh, you can talk about leading the charge in uh, connecting the dots between white supremacy in America and Christian faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like people people act like this conversation is new, but Black folk have been talking about this for centuries, mm-hmm. you know, for centuries. Um, uh, we could talk about uh, we could talk about handling suffering. We can talk about you know what it means to count it all joy. What it means. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there, there's a theology that come that comes from suffering, that comes from being treated as a second class citizen, that comes from being otherized. That you just don't get when you have social currency, you right. have the social right. currency of whiteness, and so. Um, yeah, you, you, you talk about uh, a theology, you know, sometimes people think about, you know, how, how can there be a God when there's so much suffering in the world? Mm-hmm. And sometimes, and, and, and that is a legitimate question. And I think it's, you know, it's hard to be intellectually honest and not wrestle with that. But, but sometimes my response to that is, well, ask the people who are suffering if there's a God. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You see, mm-hmm. and when you when you when mm. you view life and faith from the perspective of people at the quote unquote bottom, it actually offers insights that you don't get. From the outside looking in, yeah. there is a there is a, there is a faith. There is a there is a perspective. Um, you know, when Jesus was dying on the cross and said, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" An unanswered question. Mm-hmm. You know, um, who can who can speak to what that's about and what that means more than people who are socially crucified. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so I hope, I hope that gives a few stories there. Oh, it, it uh, does. It does. Because even as we're talking, I was thinking about the resilience of of Black Americans in this country, who time after time after time, after experiencing such heartbreak, losing loved ones to to violence, can exhibit forgiveness, can get on a pulpit or a stage and say, "Yes, yes. not riot. Let's forgive." Yes. I mean. Yes. There is frustration, you know, that uh, there's some people do have frustrated responses about that, but we African-Americans, I think, have consistently demonstrated a humility and a love through the pain, through the disappointment, 
that yes. all believers of every ethnic group or whatever we can benefit from because life life is hard. Um, so I really appreciate that. Um, so on a micro level, let's discuss how Black Americans may be coping in general. And in a time where racial discrimination has sort of dented the trust of so many, um, I think it's really interesting to bring up Salatin Toomey's um, theory of identity negotiation, where she argues that our cultural identities are comprised of our values. That's how we make judgments based on our cultural beliefs and salience. That's how strongly connected we feel to a particular group. Um, and identity negotiation theory also addresses the tensions we may feel between our personal and cultural identities. So within this framework, how might we unpack how minoritized believers, especially black Christians, make these negotiations between their personal identity, their black identity and their Christian identity? Yeah, yeah, that's a very fascinating question. I think, again, I think uh, the way that question is answered depends on, depends on the person, mm -hmm. but I think, from my perspective, I think there is there is a need to to value and to name the blackness as um, something that comes from God, mm. rather than something that is changed for God. Right. And let me explain that. So in my view, and not everybody thinks like this, but in my view, so I, I used to think I am, a, I am a Christian who happens to be black. Mm -hmm. And I'm not knocking anyone who, think, who, who thinks that. My perspective now is I want to be black for God. Mm. So I hold my Christianity and my humanness that God created me, God created me black. Mm -hmm. And so I want to hold the two together as, as uh, not as uh, two competing forces, but as things that ought to be working together. So me at my best, me at, at my best in terms of my surrender and my service to the Lord is me being black for God, love of God and love of self. And if I don't love, if I can't, if I can't love myself, including loving my blackness, how can I love somebody else? Hmm. And so, yeah. So, so this is maybe a difficult question, but um, she also argues that when value and salience are high, that can lead to ethnocentricity. And this is yes. what's probably, this is the critique of the predominant white church. Right. But even within the black church at times, there, there are ethnocentric experiences. I mean, there, I know yes. people who are white who go yes. to black church and they feel sort of left out. Yeah. So uh -huh. how, do we, how do we balance that? I mean, because we, we yeah. talked about the reason for the black exodus was that um, there was no space for them, but you also have cultural components like the call and response, the praise. Right. The, the, the very um, emotional and vibrant kind of praise experience, um, yes, all yes. these things that are sort of unique to the culture. How do we right. balance that where one culture is not superior to another or right. where do we make room for it? Here we go, here we go. All right. So, <laughs> so there's a difference between centering, there's a difference between ethnocentric expression that is 
a narrative against degradation in society mm-hmm. versus an ethnocentric expression coming from a, an assumed normativity and superiority. Mm, okay. So, so when 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 black folks go to church, for example, and shout and scream and get loud, it is it is an act of self love and defiance against a society that says mm. who you are is less than. Whereas, maybe in some white churches their expression it's just this is the way church is supposed to be Mm. and so what i found in multicultural context is i find that people of color are much more willing to share ethnic space in terms of worship style preaching style subject matter in a in a church context than their white counterparts of course, right. yeah, yeah. You know, Always, and so yeah, there. I think even I didn't negotiate theory speaks to this, but minority people tend to be much more accommodating. <laughs> exactly, yeah. because we know what it's we know what it feels like to be yeah. left out. We know what it feels like to be minoritized. Mm-hmm. So we're much more willing to share, um, you know. And so yeah, so so I don't think that I don't think that ethnocentricity in and of itself is wrong. I think the spirit of ethnocentricity is the issue Hmm. you know yeah i think that's a a very interesting point so uh professor thing to me she refers to this potential balance though as functional biculturalism saying if we understand and maintain constant awareness of the importance of cultural identity in us and others and learn to listen with empathy, we can achieve what she calls intercultural competence. So is that sort of what you're speaking to that if we are at least aware of it and listen to one another, then we might be able to reach some kind of unity, harmony coming together? Yeah, I think think self-awareness is the key here. Self-awareness, understanding one's own cultural lenses that you bring to the biblical text that you bring to the worship experience recognizing the conditioned reality of your christian experience of your christian experience and the more you become self-aware the more you're able to empathize and understand where other people are coming from so So i totally agree with that so then what i understand then is that black christians might be open, as you've been saying, open to a more integrated space if there was just room for their yes. voices, for their experience. Yes. And yes. as a result, the 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 potential for becoming much more unified, becoming one in Christ could be possible if only we listen to one another. Um, and I know it's not that simple because there are other things like language barriers, or again, sort of cultural aesthetics. But even as you said, with the example of the, the um, Spanish speaking um, believers, but if, if you could share the same space, maybe at different times, don't send me out in the back. Don't, don't say right. on Saturday, this is the black people are gonna meet, but right. even still share the same space, even that kind of intentionality could yeah. um, foster that kind of that, uni- that unity. It does, it does. I saw it happening. I mm-hmm. saw it happening. When we did that, it really resonated with people. 
people and and made them feel like I belong like this is my church right. I am here you know and right. you know when we had those multilingual services it was like wow everybody really belongs it's not just lip service so right. it's absolutely possible and, and I also hear that it, as, as long as people can also be their cultural selves, their racial yes. and ethnic selves, there's no yes. whitewashing, no assimilating, um, as right. long as they can be who they are and be aware that who they are is different from you. Um, and who, who I am is okay. And who you are is okay. Uh, yes. There could be some hope. So I, I want to wrap up with this. Um, I've heard from many of my friends who are white believers and they express this feeling of helplessness and some battle with shame and then resentment or feeling clueless about what their responsibility is. Now, I know that the burden of teaching should not be on black folk or non-dominant right. people, especially now, like you said, there's, we're just exhausted. Um, but at the same time, when in a position to teach, like right now with this, with this podcast, um, we might be able to offer some insights. So what insights can you sort of drag up from your own exhaustion to offer insights into the possibilities of unity among believers across different ethnicities and especially you know, between black and white Christians? What are some insights you can give to, to help our white believers yeah. in, this, in, this, in their part uh, to, to bring us to, towards unity? Yeah, um, you know, that's a hard question. I would say, you know, the easy, the easy thing, first step is basically educating yourself, you know, educating yourself on, on America, like, like read, read a people's history of America or the, or the young, or the abridged version of young people's history of America and kind of unlearn the mythology that you've been inundated with about this country since you're a little kid, which will then open you up to you know, critiques of America coming from the margins and you won't be as defensive when you have a more sober, soberly minded view of, of American history. So there's that. There is um, choosing, to, choosing to be the voice in the room mm -hmm. that dissents. You know, we, we are often complicit through our silence. And it's easy to just let things go and like, well, I don't want to say anything. People are going to be upset with me. But look, if you don't say it, nothing's going to change. So you have to be willing to pay a price in terms of moving the needle, raising awareness of issues in the spaces where your voice will carry a little bit more weight because people won't assume that you're playing the race card. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so you have to be you have to be an advocate. You have to have some self-awareness as well, understanding your own biases, not in, not in the name of self-hatred, but in the name of maturity and growth, mm -hmm. right? We all have to, white supremacy does not just inhabit white skin, as Michael, as Dr. Michael Eric Dyson likes to say, it can inhabit, it inhabits all of us. We all have to unlearn it. So just acknowledging that. Uh, and so I would start there, start with self-awareness, start with being an advocate, uh, and, and, and learning, learning the history. And are there any books that you would recommend um, besides Howard Zinn's uh, People, People's History of America? So for Christians, I would say uh, a good book to start with is The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby, because he basically outlines how white American religion 
accommodated, reinforced, and supported white supremacy, and how you know it's it's just very sobering. And again, it helps with self awareness, you know, because um, you know a book like that or Divided by Faith is another one uh, by Emerson, I believe is the last name. Um, that's another one. Uh, also, Trouble I've Seen by uh, Drew Hart. Okay. Okay. I mean, I just want to end with this, that the purpose of this conversation is not to, to beat on white people <laughs> or to say that white people are bad. The purpose of this podcast and the, the mission of this conversation is to remind us of who we're supposed to be as Christ followers, to yeah. honor the mission of the gospel. And when I imagine the person of Yeshua, Jesus, who walked among the people and was just grieved, I, I would imagine he would be grieved. He is probably grieved at the dissension between us um, and the ways in which we, we, we don't come together. He says, I, I believe when he's praying in, um, was it John 17, that he prayed that we would be one as he and the father are one. He right. says that the world will know us by the love that we show one another. So we're right. not supposed to be like the world. So the mission of this podcast and this episode is to convict us so that we can turn around and for the purpose of our spiritual growth, not necessarily our uh, pat uh, patriotism or our patriot, pa patriot loyalty, but our loyalty to the kingdom. The purpose is to sort of foster our connection and commitment to the kingdom so that we can become what Jesus imagined. So I thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience with us today. And I look forward to, um, I'm hoping that this blesses people. So thank you. Thank you very much, Gareth. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I hope this conversation inspired thoughts that move us toward God's heart for us to love one another as he has loved us. May our light rise in the darkness and may healing reach our land.